Good morning, everyone. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking there this morning to God's Word. If you've been with us for some time, we've been looking at and studying the attributes of God. We've been looking at these various perfections of our great God. We've looked at God's incomprehensibility. We've looked at His immutability, His simplicity, His impassibility. And this morning, we'll be looking to the great doctrine of God's immortality. Now, many of you know that we don't like to make a big deal of Christmas around here. You know, some of us might have trees and open presents and um, see our families. But as a church, we believe that Sunday is, and every Sunday should be about Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his birth, his ascension. And so this morning, we'll be continuing our study. We won't be taking a break or, um, or looking at something different this morning. But I'd be lying if I said that the placement of this attribute um, was not providential in some sense. Because as we look this morning to this doctrine of God's immortality, we'll see a very rich connection to the incarnation of our Lord. You might be thinking to yourself, what does God's immortality have to do with Christ's birth? What does it have to do with the doctrine of the incarnation? But hopefully we'll see this morning how God's immortality and Christ's incarnation are vitally connected. And so that's what we're going to see this morning is the glory of our immortal and incorruptible triune God. And we're going to see that understanding God's immortality is actually central to understanding the significance and the importance of Christ's birth, Him taking on our mortality in the incarnation, ultimately culminating in the death of Christ and His conquering death for us and for our salvation. So we're going to turn this morning and see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. We see in this letter of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to this young man, Timothy, a young pastor who is ministering in Ephesus, and he encourages him and he strengthens him with this letter. And we'll see he ultimately points him to the beauty and glory of our immortal King. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15, but we'll be focusing this morning on verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. It is written, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word, may He write it upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to our God one more time in prayer. Oh, great God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. You have not left us to our own devices, but You have shown Yourself to us, not only in the book of creation, but in the book of Your Word. And so we pray this morning that as we look to Your Word, 
that you would reveal yourself to us and by the power of your spirit this morning, you would shine the light of your word into our hearts that we would see you, the God who is alone, immortal, invisible, and the only true and living God. And this morning we would, we, we would be brought to praise and worship of you. And we would see our great need for Christ this morning. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So we'll be looking at three different things this morning as we study this doctrine of God's immortality. The first thing we'll look at is the immortal God. What does it mean that God is immortal? What does this word immortality mean? Secondly, we'll look at the incarnate Son. And thirdly, we'll look at what does it mean that the immortal dies? So first we look at the immortal God. What do we mean when we say that God is the ancient of days? This older way of speaking about God, as Paul says in our passage, the king of the ages. What do we mean when we say God is the solid rock that he alone has immortality? Well, if you want to look on your handout, you'll see a short definition there. When we say that God is immortal, what we mean is that God cannot die, that he cannot experience any change or corruption or death of any kind, that he possesses unbounded life. Our God will never come undone and never see corruption. And as we've done, as we've gone through this series, we've seen how each of these attributes is really built upon the other one, that because God has not received life from another, right? You remember when we talked about God's aseity, God has the fullness of life in and of himself. Because God has not received life from another, his life cannot be taken away by another, right? Because God has life in and of himself, his life cannot be taken away. And what we're saying when we speak about God's immortality is not just that God's life is really long or that it doesn't end, but rather that God's life cannot end because of the kind of life that he possesses. We could say it like this, God is absolutely and essentially immortal. He is absolutely and essentially immortal. He is undying. He is everlasting He is not subject to death. He is incorruptible. This is what it means for God to be God. Our God must be immortal. And we see this in our passage this morning. Paul, in this almost spontaneous crying out of praise and doxology to God, he declares God's immortality. We see in verse 17 there, he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Paul, as we've said, is writing this letter to Timothy, a young pastor in ministry, and Paul is reflecting on God's work of salvation in his own life, saving him from his life of sin and calling him to himself by his grace, and he points Timothy to gaze upon the glory of the triune God, the one who is eternal, invisible, and Immortal. He turns Timothy's heart and mind to behold our God who cannot die. Now, this word rendered here in verse 17 can also be translated incorruptible. It can be translated immortal or incorruptible. And what we say when we 
when we, what we mean when we say that God is not only immortal but incorruptible is that God is not only not subject to death as you and I are, but He is not subject to change or decay or corruption. God cannot decompose or come undone in any way, right? We know this as creatures. To be corruptible is to be subject to decomposition of some sort. But what Paul is telling Timothy is that the God that you serve is immortal and incorruptible. And it's really interesting if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul will actually bookend his letter of 1 Timothy with God's immortality. He'll say in verse 16 of chapter 6, that God is the one who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Paul begins his letter with God's immortality, and he ends his letter to Timothy with God's immortality. Why does he do this? (laughs) Why does he begin and end this letter with this attribute of God? We could ask these questions. Why can Timothy have confidence in his work and labor as a young pastor? Why can he have hope despite the false teachings that are coming into his congregation and the ungodliness that is all around him? How can he be sure that God will keep him and preserve him and sustain him in this work? Paul points Timothy to God's immortality because he serves the one who cannot die and can never come undone, right? Our God possesses unbounded life and everlasting life. And we actually looked at this a couple weeks ago when we looked at God's unchangeableness, His immutability. We looked at Psalm 102, Psalm 102, this was our call to worship this morning. The psalmist says that all of creation will perish, the heavens and the earth but our God will remain. They will pass away, but He is the same. And then He says, and your years have no end. The psalmist declares that the works of creation will pass away. Everything that is created will come to an end, but our God will not. He will remain. His years have no end. So as we've said, this is not only referring to God's immutability, His his unchangeableness, His infinite and eternal nature, but it also refers to God's immortality, His absolute immortality, that God alone is absolutely and essentially immortal. Our confession says in chapter 2, paragraph 1, that He alone has immortality. And this is important for us to understand this morning Because as you and I both know, we are not immortal. (laughs) We are very much mortal. We are creatures. We are subject to mortality and corruption. To be mortal is to be subject to death. (laughs) It's the power to divide body from soul. You can think of it kind of like a light switch, right? The light's either on or it's off. We, as mortals, are subject to death the separation of soul from body. But we're not only subject to death, we're also subject to decay and corruption. We can be dissolved. We can decompose. Our bodies and our souls can see corruption. As one person said, you can think of this as a dimmer switch, right? You look at the switches back there and the dimmer, the ones that the kids always like to play with, right? So death can be seen as this on or off switch. We're either dead or alive, but 
decay and corruption can infect us at any point in our lives. And so we are subject to both decay and death because we are mortal. And it's at this point that a good question might come into your minds. And if you've gone through the catechism with your children, they might have this question as well. I thought God gave us immortal souls that can never die, right? We read in question 18 of the children's catechism, what did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? And the answer is a soul that can never die. The next question goes on to say, do you have a soul as well, of a, as, well as a body? And the answer is yes. Children, if you remember the answer, yes, I have a soul that can never die. That it is true. God has given all image bearers immortal souls that can never die. We are not just matter and atoms running into each other, right? We have immaterial, immortal souls. And in fact, Adam and Eve had even another type of immortality in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, they were not subject to death or to decay. This is not an absolute immortality. This is not the same type of immortality that God has, which is absolute and essential. But God had conferred or given them a type of immortality. God had created mankind with reasonable and immortal souls and a potential immortality if Adam and Eve had kept the covenant of works given to them. If they had obeyed God, they would have been given immortal life, everlasting life, as it were. But as we all know so well, Adam and Eve did not long abide in this hour, right? They did not long abide in this state that Adam and Eve willfully transgressed God's command in the covenant of works. They ate of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you remember, the curse that was given, that was connected to this covenant, that if Adam and Eve ate of this fruit, that the curse that was sanctioned was on the day that they eat of it, they will surely die. They will surely die. Not only death physically, but death spiritually and death eternally. And so because of Adam's sin, not only are you and I subject to death physically, right? The separation of the soul from the body, but we are born spiritually dead. As Paul will say, dead in our trespasses and sins. Guilt of Adam's sin imputed to us being defiled in body and in soul. And that's what we looked at this morning in Romans chapter 1 and 2, this idea of total depravity. This is what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 1. He shows us the foolishness of serving mortal things. Paul shows the foolish, sinful man and how corrupt our nature truly is. That instead of worshiping and serving the immortal God who is incorruptible, Paul says that we worship and serve that which is mortal. Instead of worshiping and serving that which cannot die and does not decay, we worship and serve that which fails us. In our sin and in our corruption, Paul says we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal things. And there's sort of this 
dissension into our idolatry, right? It begins with men and then birds and then animals and then creeping things. Our sin and our corruption is kind of this vicious cycle, right? You've ever heard that saying, you are what you eat, right? Well, the scriptures would say that we we become what we worship, that because we are corrupted in our sin nature, we worship that which is corruptible. We worship things rather than God. And so in this sort of vicious cycle, we become even more corrupted because we've worshiped and served that which is not God. And so we see that left to ourselves, we are slaves of this corruption. We are slaves to this corruption. And not only us, but as Romans 8 goes on to say, all of creation is in this bondage to corruption. Sin has infested not only our own bodies and souls, but every part of creation. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how is this overcome? How is this corruption? How is this bondage to sin and slavery How do we escape this? How are we saved? How are we set free from this corruption that plagues every part of our lives? And that leads us to our second point this morning, the incarnate Son. The incarnate Son. That this is what's so important for us to understand about what God has done for us in the incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christ's birth. And this is why understanding God's immortality is so central to us understanding the significance of Christ's birth. That what happens in the incarnation is the immortal God puts on mortality. The immortal God assumes mortality. We could say it like this. In the incarnation, the immortal Son takes to Himself a mortal human nature. The incorruptible God assumes a created nature that is subject to corruption. Not by reducing His immortality, nor by adding something to Himself, but by manifesting God's incorruptible love for His people in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that's what we look to when we look to the incarnation of the Son of God. That He assumed a real human nature in the incarnation, both body and soul. The second person of the triune God was born of the Virgin Mary, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And you might think to yourself, why is that important? Why is that significant? Why did the second person of the triune God assume our nature? And the answer is to do everything that the first Adam failed to do. Obeying God's law perfectly, fulfilling the covenant of works given to him by the Father, that by his obedience, he might bring everlasting life and blessed immortality to God's people. We could say it like this, Christ came to bring the corruptible to incorruptible. Christ came to bring the corruptible to incorruption. Or we could say it the way Athanasius said, this is why the incorporeal, incorruptible, immaterial Word of God came to our realm to save us, to redeem us, 
and to restore that which is lost. This is why we celebrate the incarnation. But as we see in Scripture, Christ did not only come to live for us, but He also came to die. And that brings us to our third point this morning. The immortal dies. The immortal dies. That the Son of God came not only to do everything that the first Adam failed to do, but to die the death that our sin deserved, suffering the curse that our sin had incurred. We read in places like Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that the Son of God humbled Himself not only by taking to Himself our humanity and our mortality, but by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, taking the punishment and curse that our sin and rebellion deserve, suffering and dying because of our disobedience and corruption, that on the cross, the immortal one dies. <laughs> on the cross, the immortal one dies. And you're thinking to yourself, this has got to be a contradiction, right? How can this be? Or we could say it like the hymn writer Charles Wesley said, and can it be? <laughs> We don't, we don't have this verse in our hymnal, but traditionally, the second verse of that great hymn, And Can It Be, begins like this. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me. This, brothers and sisters, is the great mystery of the incarnation. We sing this hymn, but can we say that? Can we say that the immortal one dies? Jesus, who was the Son of God incarnate, really died on the cross. One person in two distinct natures, very man, and very God. As the Athanasian Creed says, He is God of the substance of the Father, begotten before all time, and He is man of the substance of His mother, born in time. And so can we say that God died on the cross? That might sound foreign to our ears. Can we say that God died on the cross? And the answer is yes. Because of who died. Because the one who died on the cross is uncreated and immortal, but what died on the cross was a created human nature. Can we say that God was born of a virgin? As James Dolzell says, yes, because of who, of who was born. Who was born of Mary is uncreated, but what was conceived in Mary's womb is created. Or if we want to use more biblical language, we could say, did God obtain the church with his own blood? And the answer is yes. You're thinking, does God have blood? What are, God, I thought God was spirit. We just confessed that this morning. He does not have a body. But the answer is yes, 
Because in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says that God obtained the church with His own blood. Because who shed His blood is uncreated and immortal, and what bleeds is Christ's created human nature. That in the incarnation, the person of the Son really takes to Himself a created nature in personal union with Himself. And so we can sing the great hymn, and can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And we must sing this because this is what God has done for us in Christ. This is our only hope. And you might think to yourself, why was this necessary? Why did the Son of God have to subject Himself to death? Why did Christ have to live for us and die for us? Why was the incarnation necessary? Why did Christ have to suffer for us on the cross? And the answer is because of sin. (laughs) Because we are mortal. We are subject to death and decay and corruption. As we've said, not only death physically, but death spiritually and death eternally. Corrupt in our very nature, and it took nothing less than God Himself to save and redeem us. As Augustine said, this is, a, this is an amazing quote, Augustine said, the immortal one put on mortality that he might die for us and by his death kill our death. By his death kill our our death. Because of sin, death had dominion over us. But in Christ, death has been defeated. This is what Christ did in taking on mortality. He conquered death for us that He might bring us eternal life. He overcomes death that He might bring us everlasting life. And because He is the immortal One, He has the power over death. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Because I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. (laughs) That as God, He is not subject to death But as our perfect substitute and federal head, He has defeated death for us. And by His glorious resurrection from the grave, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might be preeminent, He is able to give and bestow upon us resurrection life. Now, by the power of the Spirit and union with Him by faith, And ultimately, at the last day when He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. He did all of this for us and for our salvation. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it like this, He was poor that He might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that He might give us His Spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that He might bring us to heaven, right? This is what God has done for us 
in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the incarnation was necessary. This is why the immortal one had to put on mortality. Because God alone could not be subject to death, and man alone could not conquer it. We needed the God-man. We needed the one that would remove the effects of the curse from us, that would restore us and redeem us by His grace. And so as we step back from our passage this morning and we think about and contemplate how to apply this to our lives, there's three things that we need to look at this morning. And the first one is this. As we look to this doctrine of God's immortality, we should learn from the Apostle Paul and this should cause us to glorify and worship our immortal God. To worship and praise the one who cannot die and cannot see corruption, right? As we saw in our passage, Paul cannot help but worship and praise the one who is immortal and incorruptible. Because God has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope, we can now worship the one who is immortal. And we see in Romans chapter 1 the vanity and the emptiness of worshiping that which is created, that which is mortal, right? The creature by nature is susceptible to corruption, to decay, to failure. Everything that we try to worship in this life that is created, it will fail us. But we see that we can worship the God who is incorruptible and immortal because He will not fail us. He will not come undone, and he cannot see corruption. But we also see the great comfort that God's immortality gives us even in the face of death. We see the great comfort that God's immortality gives us even in the face of death. Because as we gather here this morning, many of us very much feel our mortality we very much feel our mortality as we, as we come together, right? Maybe you've been up all night with your kids. <laughs> Maybe you're feeling your age more acutely this season. Maybe there's been a health scare in your life. All of these things humble us and they remind us of our mortality. They remind us that we are dust and that our life is a breath, right? We all feel our mortality, and maybe even more so during this holiday season as we remember family members that have passed away this year, fellow believers that went to be with the Lord, or maybe even just looking at the sin and corruption of the world around us. And we think to ourselves, if Christ has conquered death, why do fellow believers still pass away? If Christ has conquered death, if he's defeated death, why do I still feel my mortality? Why do I still feel the effects of sin? Or we could ask it in the way the Orthodox Catechism does in question number 42. Since Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? If Christ died for us, why do we still have to die? Is God mad at us? Is he going to punish us for the sin that we still need to pay for? And the answer is no. Our death, as the catechism says, is not a payment for our sins, 
but it is a dying to our sin once and for all. It's a passage from this life to the next. Blessed entrance into eternal life. And so the believer no longer needs to fear death. The believer no longer needs to be afraid of his mortality because our God, who is immortal, and because he is immortal, we can have great comfort and consolation even in the hour of our own death. Um, One of the post-Reformation theologians, Pietrus von Maastricht, said it like this. Because the God who is immortal who made us in His image for immortality, who by an eternal decree destined us for blessed immortality, and even though we had lost our innate immortality by sin, in order to restore us, He delivered His only begotten Son over to death, that He might abolish death and bring life and immortality through the gospel. So that even though we who have died naturally, He will raise us up to blessed immortality so that what is sown in corruption will be raised incorruptible, that what is sown perishable might be raised imperishable, that the mortal might put on immortality. That this is what God has done for us in Christ. He put on mortality that he might conquer death for us. And so may we long for this eternal state where we are with God forever. May we long for this blessed immortality and may we look to Christ who is our eternal life. That's our third and final point this afternoon. We need to look to Christ who is our eternal life because this longing for immortality, this longing for eternal life is baked into our very nature. We all long for something beyond this world. We all have, as one writer said, an appetite for immortality. Many of you are probably familiar with the famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We all sense this innate desire. We all seek for immortality and life beyond this world. But the world seeks and strives after this in vain. The world strives for immortality in the natural and the created world, right? All you have to do is look on the internet for a couple minutes and you'll see this. Whether it's food or medicine, diet or exercise, people spending millions of dollars trying to slow the aging process using injections and surgeries to try to look and stay young, thinking that they can defeat death. Others think that they can simply escape and avoid death either by ignorance or by an unhealthy fear of death around every corner. If I just keep myself safe, then I can escape death. Some seek it by wisdom and learning through science and innovation. Maybe we can find a cure for death and can overcome it. Others seek for immortality by religious works, thinking that they can work their way up to God that their good deeds can merit eternal life. But all these fall short. All of these fail and pass away. 
Beauty fades, riches pass away, life is a vapor and a breath, but the Scripture is clear that there is only one who is immortal and only one source of eternal and everlasting life, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. John says in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we who are in Him who is true is His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That Christ alone is our life. Christ alone could accomplish this salvation for us. No one else could do it. No one else could accomplish this salvation. No one else could purchase blessed immortality for us. It could only be the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church father, Athanasius, said it like this in his book, On the Incarnation. None had the power to turn the corruptible to incorruption except the Savior. None other could renew the image of God in man except the image of the Father. None other could render the the mortal immortal except the one who is life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is God's eternal, everlasting love for His people. And this is our only hope of eternal life and blessed immortality. And there's a short saying that goes like this. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. Christ the cure. We can sing that great hymn with confidence and boldness this morning. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you alone are immortal, the one who cannot die, who cannot see corruption or decay, who cannot be bought off or decompose. And yet in the fullness of time, you took upon yourself our mortal nature that was subject to decay and destruction. And in the person of Christ, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, suffered and died in our place so that we might have death conquered for us. And we have the great confidence in your word that even though Christ died, that his body did not see corruption, (laughs) that as David predicted in Psalm 16, and as Peter confirms for us in Acts chapter 2, that even though Christ died on the cross, that you did not abandon his soul to Hades, and his body did not see corruption, that you raised him on the third day incorruptible and a perfect resurrection body like ours, that we might be like him on the last day, that we might be raised imperishable and immortal and live forever with him. Our souls united to our bodies in perfect and blessed immortality 
for all eternity. And so we look forward to this reality. We thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray that you would write these things upon our heart this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.